Episode 18 of the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast is sponsored in part by Thomas Avenue Ceramics. Home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey folks, my name is Doug, and this is the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. And this week, we're going to be talking about options for heating a garage or workshop. Because, well, that's the sort of thing we want to talk about as we head into summer. I will also be sharing an email question that I received a while back about ventilation in a one and a half story Cape Cod, as well as giving my thoughts on some news stories about construction jobs, the trades shortage, attitudes of millennials, and what it's all going to mean for all of us. But before we get started, I would like to tell you about our sponsor, Thomas Avenue Ceramics. Thomas Avenue Ceramics was established with one principle, usher the ceramic tile industry into the digital age. Thomas Avenue Ceramics founders are industry veterans with 70 years of experience. Their fathers were in the tile business, so they grew up in that world. They know the industry and they have built relationships over the years, giving Thomas Avenue Ceramics the means to produce beautiful, high-quality products, all available at the click of a button. Thomas Avenue Ceramics provides helpful design guides to get you started, measuring tools to ensure accurate orders, real-time live chat, and friendly customer service personnel available for phone orders. When you visit their website, you can browse their selection of floor tiles, wall tiles, backsplashes, and mosaics, all in the comfort of your own home without having to deal with the pestering salesperson. Samples can be sent right to your door so you never have to leave your house. Tile is a personal decision. Take your time without any additional pressure. And when you are ready, their professional sales staff is available behind the screen to answer any of your questions. As a listener of this podcast, you can save 20% off your order when you go to thomasavenueceramics.com slash hammer and enter the coupon code hammer. That's Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, Avenue Ceramics, all one word, dot com slash hammer, and enter the coupon code hammer at checkout. So let's start off by talking about garage and workshop heating. As I told you in the last episode, my goal is to have my workshop relatively climate controlled, so not only can I work out there comfortably year-round, but it will also allow me to store paints and finishes out there as well. And that means that I need heat. So I've been considering a number of options that I wanted to discuss with a qualified HVAC guy. Now, you can research this stuff on the internet all day long, and believe me, I have. But that doesn't tell you what's going to work best for you in your climate where you live. And so far, I haven't had too much luck. HVAC guy number one was someone my wife knew who had come out to our house shortly after we moved in last year and did a furnace inspection for us in order to satisfy our insurance company. While he was here, I mentioned that I would eventually like to install heat in the garage and we got into a little discussion at the time and he basically said whenever we were ready to give him a call. Well, we were ready and contacted his company about a month or so ago, a couple times, and he has never got back to us. So, 
scratch him off the list. HVAC guide number two actually did show up. A couple hours after the time we agreed to, but there was a little confusion on his end. I told him what options I was looking at, and he pushed the option that he felt was best. Okay, that's fine. After all, I am looking for an expert. While he was here, I also asked him for an estimate on our household furnace, which needs to be replaced within the next couple years. No problem. In the course of tracing a vent pipe for that furnace, he managed to break a drop ceiling tile. I guess the key word here is drop. Now, I told him that it was a PVC tile and that it cost about 10 bucks, and all he said was that he'd have to give me a discount. Um, dude, reach into your pocket and pull out a $10 bill. But up to this point, I thought, well, this could be our guy. And maybe, just maybe, that discount would be worth more than 10 bucks. Or I could at least fold the cost into the project to make myself feel better. But when I got the estimate, I wasn't that impressed. No brand name or model number or anything for the garage heater. And for the furnace, there was no brand name identified, but there was a model number that I was able to look up online. And I found out that it has horrendous reviews. It would have been nice if he'd actually discussed good, better, best options with me, but he didn't do that. At any rate, adding everything together, I don't think he's going to be our guy. HVAC guy number three. I left an email message through their website after hours one day. Didn't hear back from them. I then called them during regular business hours towards the end of the next day, but all I got was the generic default outgoing voicemail message that the phone company sets up. Not very professional, but I left a message anyway. That was on Friday. About two o'clock Monday afternoon, someone called my cell phone, but, um, well, there's two things going on here. One, I wasn't able to take the call, and two, I don't have voicemail on my cell phone plan. But I did have the number, so I knew it was them. And it was only about an hour later that I called them back and, wait for it, I got the voicemail again. So what? No office staff? No one to answer the phone? What happens if I need a service call? Will we just be playing phone tag? i got to tell you, I'm not impressed. So I think I can scratch them off the list as well. So the search continues. Who'd have thunk it would be this difficult? So, what are the options that I'm considering for heating the garage workshop? Well, basically, once you get beyond the electric space heaters, there are three options, and each have their own advantages and disadvantages. The first is a forced air gas unit, natural gas or propane. We have natural gas here. For this, I would have to have a gas line run to the garage. Not too difficult since the garage is attached. Also need to have a vent installed through the roof. Now, the advantage to this type of unit is it heats quickly. If you open the garage door and lose all the heat, it does not take long to warm up the space again. 
that's pretty much what HVAC guy number two sold me on. The disadvantage is that it blows the hot air, and that can stir up dust. And in a woodworking shop, there be dust. And you don't want dust blowing around when you are applying finish to a project. Natural gas around these parts is relatively inexpensive, but I would also have to install a window air conditioner if I want cooling in the summer. So that's option number one. The second option was really popular about 10 to 15 years ago, and that is gas-fired infrared radiant tubes. Now, this type of heater doesn't heat the air. It works pretty much in the same way as the sun. It heats objects, and the objects in turn will heat the air. There's no fan to blow dust around, which is a huge plus in a woodworking shop. And for the longest time, I thought that this was going to be the one. However, in reading a number of reviews online, I have my doubts about how ideal this type of system really is. There are some questions about how evenly it actually heats. Objects closer to the heater benefit more than objects further away, and I guess if you continue the sun analogy, well, it's usually cooler in the shade than it is in direct sunlight. And the same goes for whoever is working in the workshop. I'm six foot two, so my head is going to be fairly close to the heater, depending on where in the workshop I'm working. It's like sitting at a campfire, they say. Whatever faces the fire is going to be warm, and whatever faces away is going to be cooler. I don't know. It just doesn't sound terribly comfortable to me. Now, I don't know how legitimate these criticisms are, but in my research, the negatives tend to outnumber the positives. And I do stress that this is in my research. And it is my garage that I'm heating, so take whatever I say with a grain of salt. Maybe infrared radiant tubes are a good choice for you, but at this point, I don't think this is going to be my best option. The third option is a mini-split ductless system, which is, well, it's a heat pump. Now, there's a lot of technical stuff here as to how it works, and I am not going to claim to be an expert. Forced air gas is what dominates the market where I live. I don't know a whole lot about heat pumps. I'm not going to pretend I do. All I know is it will heat in the winter and it will cool in the summer. There's an indoor unit and there's an outdoor compressor, but there's no need for any gas lines or vents because it's powered by electricity. And that's the downside because Ontario, where I live, has the most expensive electricity in Canada. Right next door in Quebec, they have hydroelectric power, hydro. They have the cheapest electricity, but Ontario, <laughs> no, ours is the most expensive. Lucky me. So the other thing that I've heard is that heat pumps don't work so well in extreme cold, but I only want to maintain, and that's a key word here, maintain whatever the minimum temperature is for storage of paints and finishes. 
even when I'm in the workshop, I doubt that I will have the temperature much above 60. So the big question is, will the system be able to keep up with that on the coldest days? The other question is whether the efficiency of the heat pump will offset the cost of the fuel. In other words, how does the cost of running an electric heat pump compare to the cost of running a forced air gas heater? And what about maintenance? Would this be a more expensive system to maintain? And how will the dust generated from woodworking affect its performance? So many questions. Overall, though, I think the mini-split system appeals to me the most, mainly because I don't want to have to mess around with the window air conditioner, which is not going to be an easy, straightforward installation. And I like the idea of having all my climate control in one unit. At this point, I have more questions than answers, so I am still not close to coming to a decision. I need more information. I will keep you posted. All right, next up, I would like to share an answer to an email that I received a couple months ago. I already replied to it after receiving it, but I thought it was worth sharing here. And the email goes like this. I'll warn you ahead of time, I trip over my own words enough that I'm going to be tripping over the words of this email, but bear with me. Hello. I am in the process of gutting the second floor of a one and a half story Cape Cod. They will remove all the insulation in the attic, no asbestos, old blown in, old bat, and some other stuff in the joists. Then new ceilings will go up, and then the attic floor will be sealed and new blown in. I assume he means insulation. Concern. There are no soffit vents. Only a ridge vent and two gable vents. Never had mold issues in 80 years in the house. No knee walls either. The ceiling, being a one and a half story, actually slopes to the closets on both sides of the room, and the closets are the entire width of the rooms. The exterior walls in the closets are about three to four feet high, so no real knee walls. Um, I will argue here that those are the knee walls, but um, I'll continue. Concerned with insulating the sloped part of the ceiling. The home is in central New York, so yes cold. I know not to have anyone put anything up against the roof deck directly, but with no soft vents, it would be considered a hot pack slope ceiling. Suggested spray foam in the slope parts of the roof deck above the slope ceilings, then uh, blow in the cellulose when done. Any thoughts? Thank you. Okay, so let's start with a little explanation. First of all, putting things in the very simplest terms, A one and a half story house looks pretty much like a single story house. The difference being that the attic has been converted to living space. You're living in the roof, as Dean Johnson of Home Time used to say. So what you typically have on the second level are knee walls between the floor and the roof rafters. And that gives you a vertical surface rather than having the ceiling of the finished area sloping completely to the floor makes arranging furniture and stuff much easier. Now, in this gentleman's case, the knee walls are within closets, right? So between the knee wall and where the roof meets the ceiling of the first level, um, that's unconditioned space. That's the side attic. 
and it's insulated much the same way as a full attic would be, with insulation in between and over the ceiling joists. That is, the ceiling joists of the lower level, or what would be the floor joists of the attic. Same thing. And then the knee walls are insulated as exterior walls. The knee walls meet the roof rafters. And it's the rafters that give you that cathedral slope going up towards the peak. And usually a couple feet below the peak is where you have what are called hip rafters, which give you a horizontal surface for the ceiling. Now the hip rafters are insulated in the same way as the attic or the side attic. And you're left with a pocket of unconditioned space between that ceiling and the peak of the roof. You know, it, it's much easier to look at a picture, and you can see a diagram of this either on my website or at yaneeks.com. That's J-O-N-E-A-K-E-S dot com. And I would like to thank Mr. Eeks very much for allowing me to use his diagram on my website. So if you go to my website or you go to his website, you're going to see the same diagram. So in terms of ventilation... You have soft vents, which are on the underside of the roof rafters where they overhang the exterior of the house, otherwise known as the eaves. And then you have roof vents up near the peak. And ideally, you'd have a continuous soft vent and a continuous ridge vent. So what happens is the air is drawn through the soft vents into the side attic space. And from there, it goes through that airspace that's between the insulation and the roof deck, between the rafters, and into the space between the ceiling and the peak, where it can then exit out of the roof vents or the ridge vent. So you have continuous airflow. And there's actually two purposes for this airflow. The first is for moisture control. Insulation is not effective if it gets wet. So if you have warm, moist air inside and it happens to get into the attic space, it needs a way to get out of the attic space. As someone on a home improvement forum told me so eloquently years ago, if you were a water droplet, could you find your way out of the attic? The second purpose is to prevent the roof deck from overheating. Unconditioned attic space should be the same temperature as it is outdoors. And I don't know of too many attics that actually achieve this, but let's face it, they'd be much hotter if it wasn't for this air movement. So if you have asphalt shingles, what ends up happening is they will end up deteriorating faster. I know when we had our roof done, the roofing company told us in no uncertain terms that they would not honor the warranty on the shingles if there wasn't proper ventilation. Our insulation was directly against the roof deck and that revelation led me to gutting the entire second floor. It's all on my website at thumbandhammer.com slash attic. Now, insulating the side attic, not a problem. Knee walls, not a problem. And the ceiling of the second level, no problem. The big problem you run into is trying to adequately insulate the cathedral slope. Remember, you need that airspace. So if your roof framing is only 2x6 material, that only allows you the equivalent of 2x4 insulation or somewhere between R12 and R14. And that's not enough. 
what we did was we added two by twos to the rafters and that gave us enough space for two by six insulation. Two by six insulation ranges somewhere between R20 and R21.5. Then we went over the rafters with an extruded foam board insulation, which added another R5 and also gave us a thermal break between the rafters and the drywall. So now we're at about an R25, R26. It should be up somewhere around R40 or more, but eh, it was better than what we had. So that's the traditional accepted way to insulate and ventilate a second story of a one and a half story house. But what do you do if you have no soffits? We had this issue ourselves. The roof ended at the exterior wall. There was no overhang. There were no eaves, no soffits. The roofing company simply put in roof vents on the lower part of the roof, basically over the side attic space. And roof vents on the upper part of the roof. I'm not sure how ideal this was, but it satisfied their requirements as far as the shingle warranty was concerned. I later found out that there is a product out there for just this situation. It's called Smart Vent. And I'm sure there's other companies that have similar products, but you can find this one at dciproducts.com. dciproducts.com. The link will be in the show notes. Now, the way this works, a one-inch strip is cut out of the roof decking near the soffit edge, and the smart vent gets installed over that. And then the shingles overlap the smart vent. So now you have the airflow going through the smart vent through the, um, the roof deck and into that space. The product complies with the national building codes. It has passed hurricane testing in Florida and ice dam testing in New England though you would probably still want to make sure it's clear of snow in the winter. But this is probably the best solution for ventilating when there are no soffits. And of course, this would be used in conjunction with a ridge vent. Again, that product is Smart Vent by DCI, and their website is dciproducts.com. And uh, no, they're not a sponsor. I am not getting paid anything to recommend this product, but this is what I would have used at the time had I known about it. So like I said, this is the traditional accepted way to ventilate and insulate a finished attic. Uh, I should also mention here that you would close off the, um, the gable vents when you use the soffit vents and ridge vents. Now, there is another option, spray foam insulation. 12 years ago, when we were insulating our attic, spray foam was relatively new. I remember researching it, and I came across a case in the Toronto area where these folks had their roof spray foamed, and the building inspector had failed it because there was no ventilation between the insulation and the roof deck. I believe that they eventually won on appeal, but... Jeez, talk about a hassle. Tom Kreitler of the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show regularly promotes spray foam for this application, and he says that spray foam can be applied directly with 
without the need for ventilation, therefore turning the entire space into conditioned space. Similarly, on Adam Carolla's podcast, Ace on the House, Doug McDonald of The Pure House talked about creating an, what he called an envelope house, where anything below the roof deck is conditioned space, making for a very energy-efficient house. So same idea that Tom Kreitler is promoting. Now, the concept of the envelope house is relatively new, and let's face it, not all building inspectors may be hip to it. And there are other considerations for exchanging air and controlling humidity and all that that need to be taken into account. But in the end, we're talking about a very energy-efficient house. Now, I, I did look into spray foam for the basement of the house that we're in now. And if the claims of the company are correct, spray foam is about double the R value of standard bat insulation. That is, you only need two inches of spray foam to achieve R12, or the same as two by four fiberglass bats. What that means is in our attic, we could have easily got over R40 on that cathedral slope if the entire cavity was filled. So spray foam is definitely a good option and one that I would look into for sure if I was in the same situation again. But uh, there's still the question of the roof. Without the roof ventilation, would the warranty on the shingles be void? And more importantly, um, how will the life of the shingles be affected? regardless of the warranty. Like I said, the spray foam concept is for doing the cathedral slopes is relatively new. You know, we're talking about 10 or 15 years here. Um, and if shingles are rated for 35 years, I mean, how, how many situations do you have where the shingles are deteriorating prematurely? I haven't seen too much information on that. I already mentioned before that a lot of unconditioned attic spaces get extremely hot if they are not ventilated properly. But now we are talking about conditioned space. So I don't know what that means. I mean, it shouldn't get overheated, I wouldn't think. But I don't really know. And there seems to be a lot of debate on this topic, proving once again that uh, there's never an easy answer and never total agreement about anything when it comes to this sort of stuff. So the best advice is to gather as much information as possible about the various options. And you know what? Talk to your local building department, especially if any part of the project is going to be inspected. But if you are going for the traditional ventilation model and you don't have soffits, you'll definitely want to look into the smart vent product or something similar. Hope that helps, but I strongly suspect that I just confused you more. Okay, finally, there is one more topic I want to cover this week. You know, I follow news regarding a number of topics around home improvement and construction and stuff like that. And a month or so ago, I came across three news stories in the course of a day or two that I found rather interesting. The first story dealt with the trades shortage. Now, this is something that has been on the radar for at least a decade because I remember Mike Holmes screaming about it on Homes on Homes. Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs also screamed about it. And it's a case of demographics. 
the baby boomers who are in the trades now are retiring. And there are not enough new tradespeople coming in to take their place. And that's a problem. The second story dealt with the number of jobs in construction in general, not just the trades. But there is a building boom happening, and there are contractors complaining that they're having a hard time finding workers. They just can't keep up. Now, it's hard to believe that the so-called Great Recession started about nine years ago. You know, that's when everything went belly up and anybody in construction had to scramble to find other work because there just wasn't any construction going on at the time. There were no jobs. The building boom that is happening now is a good sign. But the lack of workers is troubling. And then the third story that I came across was about millennials and how they do not want to go into construction or the trades. <laughs> I mean, that's weird, right? I mean, the generation that is trying to get into the workforce seems to be avoiding actual jobs. Why? I think a big reason is that we still largely refer to the trades as a fallback option. If you can't cut it in school, you can always learn a trade. That was the attitude four decades ago when I was in school, and you still hear it today. This needs to stop. Generally speaking, we need to have a lot more respect for the trades and for the people who spend their days doing hard physical labor. Sure, you don't get rich working for someone else, but if you do get into a trade, you can take that anywhere. And with the demand increasing for the trades, you will be in demand. The consequences of all this are going to be pretty interesting. Millennials are starting to buy houses, but you don't have millennials going into the trades. So when they want work done on their houses, finding someone to do that work is going to be more difficult. Simple supply and demand. The cost of hiring an electrician or a plumber or whatever, is going to go up. And that's if you can find one. So what's going to happen is more and more people are going to DIY simply because hiring someone is going to be too expensive or maybe not even possible at all. And how many of these people are going to pull permits and get inspections? You're going to have more unqualified people doing dodgy DIY. Not good. And a lot of those people are going to be the millennials who didn't want to do this type of work in the first place. The coming decade is going to be interesting. We need to stop looking down on the trades. We need to stop treating the trades as nothing more than a fallback option. We need to offer more encouragement to pursue careers in the trades. I think the attitudes are getting better, but we still have a long way to go. And as far as general construction labor goes, I think we need to get back to that whole honest day's work for an honest day's pay. There is nothing wrong with getting your hands dirty. Like I said, I, th this was the, this was the environment that I grew up in. Um, when I was in school, 
That was the whole deal was if you were smart, you were headed to university, you were headed to a white collar profession. And, you know, if you weren't able to cut it in school, you could at least fall back on a trade. And I tell you, I, I, it is unfair. It's absolutely unfair. And I almost feel like I've been shortchanged because, you know, maybe I could have been an electrician. I don't know. But anyway, uh, what do you think? Head on over to the show notes page for this episode, which is episode 18 at thumbandhammer.com. And leave a comment. Got a question you would like answered on the podcast? You can drop me an email or leave me a voicemail message at thumbandhammer.com slash contact. And as always, I would like to thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you again in a couple weeks. Cheers. <laughs>